you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some on tables or trays right behind your section of chairs. Feel free to stand up and grab one. It doesn't distract me or anybody else. Uh, it's our gift to you for this morning, or you can take it with you, uh, and we'd love to help you learn how to read it. But if you use one of our Bibles um, that look like this, please open it up to page 780. Uh, it's in the book of Acts, uh, and we're going to continue on our journey through the book of Acts. And, and for those of you who are curious why we're always in the same place for a while, we we like to actually take a book of the Bible um, and, and unpack it verse by verse, uh, one book at a time. Uh, it helps us to understand really the ongoing process of thought of what God is doing and what he is saying, but it also keeps preachers like me honest. Um, we have a tendency to, to find pet topics and, and pet issues that we like to talk about, that we feel particularly burdened about, and so without the the checks and balances of walking through the Word of God as it's presented, we like to just sit on one thing for a long time. But when you take a book of the Bible and you walk through it verse by verse, you can't do that. And you're confronted with passages like the passage we're with today that, though popular, though the majority of you are probably familiar with, um, it's rarely ever preached in church. It's rarely ever talked about in church. In fact, as I was preparing for this, I I came across something that I, I really had never known before and that Charles Spurgeon, the a man considered the prince of preachers, one of the best preachers uh, in the English language. In his 60 volume, I think it was, I wrote it down for a second, his 60 volumes of his history of preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, in the anthology of his preaching, there's not one sermon on the text that we have today. Prince of preachers, unparalleled in his capacity to explain and apply the word of God. All of his years in London, not one recorded sermon from our text today. And what we'll see is it's not unfamiliar. You're all going to be familiar with it. It's just not popular to preach on. So for those who are uh, new with us this morning, um, welcome to Redemption Hill. Uh, We're going to talk about greed, hypocrisy, and if we have time, judgment. (laughs) So the trifecta of public opinion about the church They're greedy, hypocritical, and always talk about judgment. That's what we're going to deal with this morning. Uh, And to do it honestly, um, to do it accurately, uh, to do it effectively, we're we're going to have to pray. Um, Because left to myself, it it won't happen. So uh, join me as we pray, and then we will jump right in. Father, thank you for the privilege of coming together uh, as your people. Uh, We ask, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that, that you help us to surrender our hearts to your word this morning. Lord, help us in our, our natural desire to, to exalt ourselves over your word and sit in judgment over you and your word. Lord, help us to refrain from that and, and to posture ourselves in humility and surrender to who you are and, and to what your word says and, and help us to receive it as, Lord, as balm to our soul. And we ask that in the time that we have this morning, Lord, I, I ask personally, Lord, you give strength to my voice, um, Lord, and you give uh, clarity and, and power to my words and that you do what only you can do this morning in the time that we have. And we ask these things, Lord, for your name's sake, that you would be glorified. In the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, We are going through the book of Acts. That's where you have turned. Uh, The book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. Luke was actually a doctor. He was not a preacher or a pastor by trade. He was actually a doctor. He was a very well-educated man, and he was commissioned by a patron named Theophilus, a wealthy man, uh, to write a, a biographical history 
of the person and work of Jesus, all that he said and all that he had done. And, and Luke took that task on with great energy and great, and great gusto, and, and he wrote volume one of uh, what we call the Gospel of Luke about the person and work of Jesus. And he did that in an effort that Theophilus and all of those who would come in contact with his letter, now us, foresight, the church, that we would have confidence and that we would have certainty in all that we had learned about the person and the work of Jesus. And the book of Acts is volume two. He didn't stop the biography of Jesus. He understood the person of Jesus and he understood the work of Jesus and that the work of Jesus was not done. And Acts, this second volume that we're walking through, is about all that Jesus continues to do, continues to teach, all the ways that Jesus continues to perform the work that he came and established in his time here on earth. And that's what we're unpacking as we go through the book of Acts. It's about how Jesus continues to fulfill his promise and fulfill his purposes through his people, empowered by his spirit, for his glory here on earth. That's us. We're going through the book of Acts trying to understand with certainty and confidence what Jesus has done for us and how Jesus empowers us to be the people that he has created us to be and to live the lives that he has created us to live, that he would receive glory and we would receive joy. That's what the book of Acts really is all about. And so far as we've walked through it, we've, for some of you, probably done it at a snail's pace, a little bit slow. For me, it's been a little bit fast. Um, But for what we have seen so far, we've seen how Jesus has continued to fulfill the promise that he gave his disciples and his apostles in the early church. How after his ascension to the right hand of God the Father and his promise to empower his people through his spirit, he, he did that and he poured out his spirit on his people fulfilling a long-awaited promise of the Old Testament. And in that pouring out of his spirit, a a new people was born. The church was born. And and Luke, so far in the first few chapters, has really just given us snapshots of what life was like for that first church. What life was like in the early days of that church that was formed by the resurrection and pouring out of God's spirit upon his people. And so far, what we've seen, it's been pretty picturesque. I mean, life in, in the early church seems pretty idyllic, such to the point that a lot of people today contrive their sense of church and and understand the purpose of church simply in trying to return back to what they've read in the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts. What we're going to see today is is something a little bit different. John Stott, great preacher from England, he said the first century church wasn't all righteousness and romance. There were still humans involved. And wherever humans are involved, problems arise. Sin finds its way in. But for the most part, the pictures we've seen have been idyllic. As Satan applied pressure to the early church from the outside, as we looked at in the last few weeks, as civil leaders and religious leaders applied pressure upon the church, trying to get them to stop bearing witness to the person and work of Jesus, what what happened? The church grew. More were added to the church. More were saved. As as persecution and pressure from the outside began to grow, the church began to grow. Their witness became more powerful. People began to be drawn to it. But Satan is is simply not uh, one to give up easily. If he can't begin to thwart the purposes of God from pressure on the outside, well, then an internal job is necessary. If persecution doesn't bring this thing down, then we're going to have to figure out a way to work work it out from the inside. And what we're going to see this morning in And the end of Acts chapter 4 and the first part of Acts chapter 5 is what some commentators call the original sin of the church. We're going to see the first recorded instance of internal strife and internal sin in the church. And we're going to see the first recorded death in this early church. It wasn't all romance and righteousness. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts 
chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. We'll read, I'll talk, and then we'll, uh, we'll keep going. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed, they're talking about the church here, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, and some of your Bibles will say from time to time, for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So still the picture looks nice, doesn't it? The little portrait that Luke has given us of life in this early church seems pretty picturesque, seems pretty idyllic, but Luke is giving us this picture because he's building us up to a point. He's taking us somewhere, and and this is going to be one of those texts that uh, really your Bibles and the way that we have broken your Bibles up and the the addition of chapters and verses in your Bibles actually do you a disservice. This this is part of an ongoing story that goes from chapter 4 into chapter 5, but very rarely do we ever read it because we see these big numbers and we think, okay, this stops here and then this starts here, but Luke is telling us this little story, this little picture, because he's taking us somewhere because he wants us to see something. But there's a few things I want us to see in this little picture that give us a bit of a foundation for where he's going, that give us a a bit of a sense of what was happening here so that we can understand what he's going to try to communicate to us in, in just a little bit. Look at verse 32. Luke says, Now the full number of those who believed. You had to stop right there. You didn't think I was going to go further, did you? Now the full number of those who believed. There's something foundational you've got to get here if we're going to understand what he's going to be saying in the rest of this text. What did these people believe? Because what they believed is going to produce what we see. And what they believed is going to be the antidote, ultimately, to what we see. So we're going to have to understand what it is these people who were gathered together actually believed. What they actually believed is what is often called the gospel. See, this was a, a people who, who had begun to believe with all that they were that, that their sin, their, their unrighteousness, their, their sense of trying to find their own righteousness in their own behavior and in their own efforts, their, their sin was, was actually an offense to a holy and righteous God, and their sin amounted to what people call cosmic treason. They began to actually believe that their sin amounted to cosmic treason before a holy and a righteous God. And you know what treason is, right? Is that an unfamiliar term to you? And treason is the deliberate effort to undermine or overthrow a ruling power, to to undermine or or overthrow a king or a ruling government. And and so what our sin is, what our, our sin is before a holy and righteous God is an effort to overthrow his right and his rule over us. Our sin is actually a sense of cosmic treason before God where we look at him in his righteousness and in his holiness and in his sovereignty and power and we say, I'm going to live the way that I want to live. In this world, my world, my rules are what determine how we live. Our sin at core is actually an effort to overthrow or undermine God's right to rule over his creation. These people actually began to believe that. The problem is, if you were going to try to willingly or deliberately undermine or overthrow, let's say, the, the government of the United States, and rest assured, you'd probably be caught. What would happen? What would happen? Well, you'd be put to death. 
you'd be put to death. The penalty for treason is death. I mean, what power or right would the United States have if it willingly looked over deliberate acts of treason, deliberate acts of its own people to undermine or overthrow its own government? What power would it actually have if it actually overlooked those things? How much more so our sense of cosmic treason? How much more so our sin, our deliberate efforts to undermine or overthrow God's right to rule and reign over our lives, over his creation, how much more so is it deserving punishment? See, this is what these people actually began to believe. They knew that it actually was not safe to be a, in a, to be a, a sinner in a world that was ruled by a holy and a righteous God. They actually began to actually believe this. They actually began to own this in their souls. They believed that according to God and his word, we were treasonous criminals and we were in danger. That we had rebelled against a a holy and a righteous God and the penalty due our treason was death. Not simply physical death, but spiritual death. And so what these people began to believe as that settled in on their heart and on their soul was that what they needed was rescue. If they stood guilty of treason before a holy and righteous king, what they needed was rescue. What they needed was pardon. What they needed was forgiveness. But how in the world does a holy and righteous and just God pardon, forgive, pass over something as grand as our treason? How could God be holy and just and pass over and forgive our cosmic treason, our efforts to overthrow his rule and his reign. What they actually began to believe was this, and one of my favorite things in all of Christianity. They actually began to believe that the wisdom of, of God made a way for the love of God to satisfy the righteousness and justice of God without compromising the holiness of God. They actually began to believe this. How did he do it? Well, in his love and in his mercy, he sent his son Jesus to take on the flesh of humanity. He sent his son to this earth, to the brokenness of this earth, to live the life that we were created to live in our place. He lived the perfect life that we were created to live originally in our place. And then willingly, he laid his life down on a cross where he was crushed where the sin of all humanity, where the weight of our collective cosmic treason crushed his body. And on the cross, God the Father judged the only innocent person in all of history for the treason that you and I and all the rest of creation have continued to commit. He did this in our place so that his justice, his righteousness, and his holiness could be satisfied and his forgiveness and his love and his mercy could be spread to those who continually continue to rebel against him. The wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to satisfy the justice of God without compromising the holiness of God. This is what this group of people collectively began to believe. They were what we can call a gospel-centered people. Their hearts and their souls beat with the mercy and the grandeur of the gospel. 
This is what the early church, the full number, those who now probably number in the ten thousands, this is what they began to believe. Now Luke's going to go on and show us some of the effects. And you've got to get this if you're going to get the effects. What he's going to say comes out of this group is founded solely on what it is they actually believe. So listen to what he says. They were a gospel-centered people who believed their sin was a treason against the holy God, but who believed the holy God made a way for his love and his mercy to forgive and to pardon them without compromising his justice and his holiness. And this is what began to happen as they believed that and were satisfied in that. They became of one heart and one soul. There was a particular type of unity that began to develop in this early church. And I don't want to take too much time on this early part, but I want you to see this. This is this phrase, one heart and one soul, was a common phrase used in this time period, mostly in philosophical writings, not really in, in biblical literature, but in philosophical writings. And it's always talking about a particular type of friendship. We're not particularly talking about unity around a system of thought. This is one heart, one soul that's being united in a particular type of friendship and relationship. Something was being produced amongst this 10,000 people of different classes and different ethnicities, people with different backgrounds and different heritages, people who came from different religions and different places on the earth, all found themselves in this place, centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and a particular type of relationship and friendship was born out of that, such that they could say they were one heart and one soul. These were a people who truly knew what it was to weep with those who weeped and to mourn with those who mourned and, and to rejoice with those who rejoiced. But don't, don't miss this. This is one of my pastoral caveats. This particular type of unity does not mean they agreed on everything. I mean, make, make no mistake, the, the early church, people from all types of different backgrounds, they didn't agree on what to eat, what they should wear, the places they should go, uh, they didn't agree on a lot of things. And when we talk about unity in the church, one of the most devastating things that we could ever do in the life of a church is to compel people to conform to a particular pattern of life that replicates not what God has called us to in the scriptures, but to what we enjoy and we do. What am I saying? Unity does not produce a church body or a church community that all carry the same Bible, that all wear the same kind of clothes, that all listen to the same kind of music, that all eat the same kind of food, that all raise their kids in the same manner. To compel people to that pattern of living is one of the most repulsive things when they come to look into the life of the church. It's one of the most devastating things we could ever do in the life of the church. One of the wonders of, of the gospel, one of the wonders of the work of Christ is that he honors all of our individuality. He honors all of the gifts and the differences that he created us with while at the same time bringing us into unity. I'm going to give you a quote. I can't say this any better than, than, than Tozer to make the point. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said. He says, has it ever occurred to you, and you're going to get a picture in your mind, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being united not to each other, but to a standard to which each one must individually bow. So get this. Let's take this room right here. So 300 worshipers meet together, each one looking away from himself and to Christ, are now in heart nearer to each other than they could ever possibly be if they became unity-conscious or unity-focused 
and they turn their eyes away from God in an effort to strive for closer fellowship. Do you hear what he just said? A people whose hearts are centered on the gospel, a people whose awareness of their sin and the holiness of God and the mercy of God and whose eyes are fixed on the person and work of Jesus are nearer in unity than those who collectively come together and figure out ways to strive for community and fellowship and unity. So one of the the great effects of being a gospel-centered people is that they were drawn to one another and their relationships and their community and their unity was born out of something they couldn't produce in themselves. Something born out of the gospel. Let's look, he keeps going. He's going to describe this church a little bit more. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So this gospel-centeredness not only produced a unity and a fellowship that was uncommon and uncharacteristic of, of, of humanity, period, apart from the gospel, it also produced a power and effectiveness in their witness. The very thing that Jesus said he was going to empower them to do and the very thing we're called to be. As their eyes and their hearts were centered and satisfied solely on the person and work of Jesus in the gospel, their witness became powerful and effective. Their gospel-centeredness produced a powerful mission-mindedness. Familiar phrases for some, hopefully. But he's not done. He's not done. This is a good part. Gospel-centeredness not only produced unity and power, but their gospel-centeredness produced a freedom, a particular type of freedom, a freedom from the love of stuff that resulted in a grace-driven generosity. Listen to this verse. We'll go back for a second to verse 32, then we'll jump to 34. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, from time to time, they would sell them, and they would bring the proceeds of what was sold, and they would lay it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he has need. This is a particular type of generosity that is born out of a heart that's been transformed. This is not a generosity that can ever be achieved by conformity to a ruler law. This is a particular type of generosity that's born out of a heart that's centered on the gospel, that understands its life as having received great grace, as Luke said, from God. And it produces a grace-driven generosity that cannot be produced by any law or precept that a people or a church or a group could ever put on you. This is a particular type of generosity. It's a type of generosity, honestly, I won't lie, that, we pray, that I pray for and the pastors here pray for for this church. It's a generosity that's born out of a heart that's centered and satisfied in the gospel. Now, I'm going to tell you two things I'm not going to do. One thing I'm not going to do is explain to you why this is not some form of Christian communism. Most of the time in this passage, if you find people who preached on it, we've got to talk about this, but just listen. This is not communism. They could not sell their property and give it away if they didn't actually own it. Make sense? Later on in the book of Acts, you're going to find the church meeting in people's houses all over the land. This is not a treatise against private property and personal ownership. This is a picture of what's born in the hearts of people who are being transformed from the inside out by a heart that's centered on the gospel. And it's a picture of how that begins to reshape the way you understand the things that are around you in your life, the gifts that God has given you. And the other thing I'm not going to do, which is common and mostly expected of, of preachers at this point, 
is to use this as a great launching point into tithing and into our church's consistency and practice of tithing and offering. A couple of sermons that I found by people that I love use this passage as a great jumping off point to talk about tithing. Um, I think you missed the point of the passage at this point. This passage really isn't about tithing. It's really not about that at all. Let me just say that. So I'm not going to jump off into tithing. So those of you who think we're about to get into a sermon on tithing and giving, you can just settle down. You can release yourself from the ceiling and, and settle in. And I want you to understand that as you read this text and you read this story, I, I want you to see that this was a particular people most likely responding to a particular problem and a particular issue in a particular time, and they did it in a very unique way. I mean, remember that thousands of people had come to Jerusalem for the festivals. They were there for Pentecost. Thousands of people from all over the land had come to celebrate. And it was at that time that in God's providence, he sent his spirit upon his people, and Peter preached his great sermon, and thousands were added. And from that time, thousands more have been added. So you've got to imagine there are lots of people from all over the place who had no intention of staying in Jerusalem, who left their home and left their goods and came, who have now heard the message of the gospel, who have been saved, and who are not ready to leave Jerusalem to go back home. They want to stay. They want to learn. They want to understand more of what they've heard, so they're there. And so here's this people faced with a bunch of foreigners who have come into the land, who have left all their stuff back home, who had no intention of not going back home, and now they've got to try to meet needs. It's a particular problem in a unique time, and they met it in a very unique way. So this isn't a text that we're supposed to look at and go, how then do we create this in the life of the local church? That's not what this text is about. The, the carryover, though, from this text that I will give you is that it's the generosity the sense of a grace-driven generosity that characterizes the life of this community born out of the gospel that's captured their heart that we should seek to replicate in the church today. It's this type of grace-driven generosity that we pray towards today. So I'm not going to preach on tithing. We're not going to preach on offering, offerings now. We will at some point. Instead, what I'm going to do for every single one of you, for all the, the households here, we're going to give you something. Uh, a friend of ours, a, a church, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, uh, the, really the, the fathers of uh, the movement in Acts 29, uh, their lead pastor, Jamie Munson, has written one of the best gospel-centered books on the understanding of money. It's called God or Gift, and it's an exposition of Luke 12. It's a really easy book. Um, looks like this. On your way out today, we've got one for every household here. I want you to take it, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to read it, especially during this time of the year. It's an easy book to read. I want you to read it. And I want, to re- I want you to read it with a heart that's prayerful, that's asking God to help shape a grace-driven generosity in you. And here's what I want you to do if you have a family. I want you to bring your kids into the discussion. I mean, if there's anything we should talk about at some point in the church, it's money. And the grip that the love of stuff has on our hearts. It starts when your kids. They watch you, parents. So I want you to read this during this season when so much stuff and so much greed tends to grip our hearts. And I want you to read this and I want you to prayerfully think about how a grace-driven generosity is reflected in your life and in your budget. And I want you to bring your kids into it. Is that okay? So on your way out, I want you to grab one of those. But we're going to keep going now. Gospel-centeredness has produced in this community a unity, a power, and an effectiveness, and a generosity that cannot be produced by men. It cannot be produced by any rule that we could ever put upon you or any pattern or system of behavior that we could ever create. 
Luke is giving us an unbelievably beautiful snapshot of a people whose hearts have been transformed by the gospel from the inside out. One of my heroes, John Piper, he said that Christianity is not a matter of external conformity to a religious expectation. It's a matter of internal liberty. It's not a matter of force and law. It's a matter of freedom and love. Being a Christian means that being changed from the inside out so that you fall in love with people and fall out of love with things. That's what the gospel is producing in this community. That's what Luke wants us to see in the first part of this narrative here. He wants us to see a people who have a freedom, a freedom born of the gospel, free to love others, free to serve others with their time, with their talents, and with their treasure. And if there's ever a sermon we have to preach at some point, it's how the gospel produces a freedom from the love of stuff. Because if there's ever a struggle that we have in this day, in this century, in this time, in this country, it's a struggle with the love of stuff. We buy more things that we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't really know or like than we would ever care to admit. And the gospel has produced in this people a freedom from that kind of love of stuff. And it's come out of liberty, not conformity to a law. Luke's going to go on as he take that picture, take that narrative, take that snapshot, and he's going to give us two exhibits, like a good lawyer. Exhibit A of what I'm saying, and he's going to give us exhibit B of the other side. Look at verse 36. Exhibit A. A man named Barnabas, free from the love of stuff. Look at verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's a picture of a man who has embodied all that Luke just described was going on in the life of the church. A man whose heart has been centered on the gospel. A man who's a part of this unity and fellowship of the body of church. It's meeting needs that they see fit. And a man who's free from the love of his stuff and has developed such a grace-driven generosity that as he recognizes a need, he sells the land that he has and he gives it to the apostles for the distribution to meet the needs that have arisen in the church. Classic example of what Luke has just talked about, right? Exhibit B. This is where your Bibles aren't helping you if you stop at chapter 4. Exhibit B, Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, you're familiar with this one. I heard chuckles. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. There is a translation out of the Greek that says he gave up the ghost. He breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are now at the door, and they'll carry you out. Look at that. Immediately she fell down at his feet, and she breathed her last. Now when the young men came in, they found her dead. They just come in from burying it, you know, nice. Well, they come in, and they find she's dead. And they carry her out too, and they bury her beside her husband. 
and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Great grace was upon the people. Now, great fear. Undoubtedly, if you've been in church for any period of time, familiar with the stories of the Bible at all, you've heard the story in some way, shape, form, or fashion of Ananias and Sapphira. And naturally, as we read this story in its context, the conclusion that we jump to is that the judgment that came upon Ananias and Sapphira is related to the fact that they, had a, they were not experiencing a freedom from the love of stuff, that there was a greed that had captured their heart. And they had kept back for themselves some of what they had committed to give to the church. That's naturally the assumption as you read the narrative in relation to the picture of the community and the person of Barnabas. But was the real problem with Ananias and Sapphira simply that their hearts were not free from the love of stuff? I mean, really, was that the issue that brought about the judgment of God on this couple? On the surface, let's say it this way, on the surface, it can look that way. And and there's no doubt that part of the motivation behind what they did related to a heart that wasn't free in the same way from the love of stuff. Where the gospel had not produced the same grace-driven generosity that we saw in the picture of the church just verses before. To, to a degree, that's, that's probably true. But it can't be that in total if you read the story in context. That can't really be the ultimate answer. Because in verse 4, chapter 5, Peter looked at Ananias and he said, wasn't this your land that you were free to do with whatever you wanted? And after you sold it, Weren't you free to do whatever you wanted with the proceeds you got from it? So it can't be that their hearts were so gripped by the love of stuff and they held this back in some way to keep from the church because they were free to do whatever they wanted. There was no law that said when you sell that property or that you have to sell that property. And when you sell that property, you've got to give it all to the church. They were, they were free. They were free. So you've got you to get that. It can't be ultimately that they just were gripped by this love of their goods, that they were just gripped by the love of, of this money. So what's, what's the issue? I mean, if that's not it, what, what's going on underneath that or what's going on aside from that that would bring the, the judgment of God the, the way it did here in chapter 5? Well, Luke gives us a little bit of a clue, but it's hard to actually understand in, in English. But when people would have read this in Greek, when he wrote it, they would have immediately picked up on something that he said that begins to clarify what was actually going on. See, in chapter 5, when Luke said that Ananias and Sapphira kept back for themselves some of the proceeds of the land they sold, he used a word that's only used one other time in the Greek version of the Bible. In the Greek Old Testament, this word is used one time in Joshua chapter 7. And in Joshua chapter 7, it tells the story of a man named Achan. You see, Joshua had just led the Israelites in a battle, and they had just overcome Jericho, and they're on their way to Ai, Ai, however you want to say it, Ai. They were on their way to Ai. And the Lord said that when you conquer this land, all of the goods, all of the land, all of the, the pilfer and, and riches of the land are to be devoted to me. And when Achan got his eyes on those Babylonian clothes and gold and trinkets and riches, the Bible says that he kept back for himself, or literally translated in there, stole some of those goods and riches. So Luke takes that word for Achan's stealing from what was devoted to God and keeping for himself. He uses that same word over here to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. So what we understand is that they, in some sense, stole from what had been devoted to the Lord. So what you have to see is that they had made some sort of pledge or covenant with the church community some public form of confession that they were going to sell their land so they could give it to the proceeds of it to the church to meet the needs. 
And when the time came for them to do that, they sold the land and then kept back, stole from the, from the church and from what had been committed to God and kept for themselves some of the proceeds. So when Ananias comes to Peter, Peter, undoubtedly prompted by the Holy Spirit, begins to look at him and he says, what you've done, Ananias? It's not simply kept back for yourself what you had every right to keep. You were free to do with your stuff whatever you wanted to do. But what you've actually done is you've lied to God's people. And worse than that, you've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You see, the the problem here with Ananias and Sapphira, the real crime, was not that they kept back some of the money for themselves, but they lied. Deceit was really the crime that they should be charged with here. You see, somehow they had begun to believe that their sin was just deceiving other people. They had begun to test the spirit of the Lord, Peter said, to actually think, does he really know what we're doing? Is he really holy and righteous in the sense that he says he is in such a degree that what we're doing would offend him and bring his judgment? In their hearts, they had tested the righteousness and the holiness of God. They had simply not just lied to men, but they had drawn God's character into question. They lied to the one who had changed the very people they were a part of from the inside out through his gospel. And so you could stop here and say the lesson for the church is don't lie to God and and don't lie to everybody else in here. Um, Or or you could ask why did they lie? I mean, if their crime was deceit, why did they do it? Because, you see, it it would be understandable. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. It would be understandable for them to lie, to keep back some of that money, if there had been a law that said, if you sell your property, you have to give it all to the church. I mean, it would make sense if there was a law they wanted to get around that they would lie, doesn't it? Doesn't that make sense? But it wasn't there. They were free. They were free to do with their stuff whatever they wanted before they sold it and after they sold it. So why in the world would they lie? The love of Stuff is one of the great cancers that eats away the soul of a Christian in a church. And the love of people's opinion has to be the second greatest one. They weren't free from the love of their stuff. They certainly weren't free from the love of popular opinion. And you see, their problem, their deep, really, the issue behind why they did what they did is understood when you read it in its context with the person of of Barnabas. See, they saw Barnabas sell the land that he had out of a generosity born of the gospel and bring it to the apostles. And they saw kind of an acclaim build up around Barnabas. He even got a nickname, son of encouragement. Ananias and Sapphira saw this and they wanted a piece of the action. They saw the acclaim and the the, the fame and the name that came around Barnabas for what he had done. And they said, we're going to do that too. Barnabas sold land, I'm going to sell land. Barnabas brought it to the apostles, we're going to bring it to the apostles. Maybe we'll get a nickname. You know, Ananias' name meant God is gracious. Maybe I'll be God's gift to the church. Sapphira's name meant beautiful. Maybe she's daughter of beauty. Maybe that's what they were after. Whatever it was, their hearts were gripped by the popular opinion of people around them. The real problem with Ananias and Sapphira was that they lied in order to make themselves appear appear as something that in reality they weren't. 
One commentator on this passage said that this was deliberate deception for self-exaltation. And if there is a sin that has so gripped God's people, it is deliberate deception for self-exaltation. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite pastors, uh, in his commentary, he said that we share Ananias' sin not when others think that we are something that we aren't, or that something that we are, but when we try to make others think we're something that we're not. We share this sin when others think, not when others think we are something other than we are, but when we try to make others think we're something that we're not. So let me ask, do you, you have places in your life where you know that you intentionally try to make other people think you're something that you're not. You shouldn't have to think very hard. I mean, this is the backbone of marketing and advertising. It is the love of other people's opinion. It is the praise of men, not the reason why we buy so many things that we buy, why we do so many things that we do. And so we won't even talk about the external obviouses, the embellished resumes, the embellished bodies all the ways we do the things that we do to try to get people to see us a particular way. Let's, let's go one better. What about spiritually? What about spiritual hypocrisy? Spiritual deliberate deception for self-exaltation? Have you ever in your life, or do you know of a place in your life where you try to create the impression that you're someone that you're not? Maybe you're a man or a woman of prayer. Maybe you're a man or a woman of faithfulness to the scriptures. Have you ever tried to deliberately create an impression for someone to see you in a particular way that is not true to the person that you are? Are there actions or attitudes in your life that you'd rather people not know or things in your private world that you would never do or say or admit to around people from the church community? I'll make it easy for you. Whatever you're thinking of while I'm talking is probably it. That's probably it. And so here's the thing. What you're doing is sympathizing with Ananias and Sapphira and craving the popular opinion of people more than God's. Because what they fail to see is that no matter what they do to deceive people who are very easily deceived, God is not deceived. God sees all things. In fact, Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature, that includes you and I, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Every thought, word, and deed is seen and evaluated by an all-seeing and all-knowing God. So whoever you are in the eyes of the all-seeing and all-knowing God, no matter what you do in front of me and say to me, whoever you are in front of him is who you really are. That's what tripped them up. That's what they missed. And, And here's the thing, believe me, this is a temptation that besets all of us. I mean, if it's particular, if it's particularly tempting, it's gotta be particularly tempting to a pastor. I mean, I am no stranger to this sin and this particular temptation. There's a reason why pastors have the stereotypes they have. There's a reason why you, what you see on the news happens the way that it does when it comes to pastors. There's a tremendous amount of pressure on pastors or church leaders to appear holy, to appear a particular way in front of people. And outside of that pressure to appear a particular way, there's a financial pressure tied up to it. Our livelihood, to some degree, is tied up in us appearing a particular way. No stranger to this. It's just like being single, those of you who aren't married in here. You're tempted to deliberately deceive or exalt yourself to appear a particular way in the eyes of someone else that isn't true to the person you really are. Amongst the other reasons why you want to get married, one of the greatest gifts about being married is that you are now united to someone who will know you 
inside and out for who you are. At some point in your marriage, you will not be able to pull that same stuff over on that person. It's one of the greatest gifts that God's ever given me. The greatest gifts God's ever given me is the honesty that's come from having been known by my wife. But all of that, pastor, unmarried, all that starts, honestly, when you're kids, parents. It all starts with the way that you reflect honesty, authenticity, and openness in your home with your spouse and with your kids. Young people in here, teenagers, junior hires, elementary school, you're in here, you know what I'm talking about. It becomes very easy to create a particular persona for your family and for your friends that knows all the right things to say, all the right things to do, that will keep all the right people off your back so that you can do whatever it is you want to do or say and keep free from the trouble that might come down on you if you don't do whatever you're supposed to do. That mindset comes from parents who do a very good job of training small Pharisees and hypocrites. They learn that from you. It starts when they're kids. I mean, what's your honesty and your openness and your authenticity like with your family? The image, the image that you portray is not you. The problem is we begin to believe our own press. The image you portray is not you. Who you are in the eyes of the God who sees all things is who you really are. And here's the thing. This is where we'll tie this thing up with a bow. Here's the thing. It doesn't just destroy you from the inside out. This intentional, spiritual, or personal deception, this hypocrisy, it doesn't just eat away at your soul like a cancer. It eats away the life of the church. Your sin does not just affect you. Your treason does not just affect you. It affects the church community. And God has determined, as he shows in this particular narrative, that he will not let that cancer spread. He will not let that cancer destroy his church. Ephesians 4 says, Each of you, talking about the church, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. This cancer will destroy you, and this cancer will destroy God's people. So we've got to kill it. We've got to put an end to it. We've got to get rid of it. How do we do that? This is where he's going. How do we do that? What produced the unity, the fellowship, the honesty, the power, the effectiveness? What produced the grace-driven generosity and relationship to one another? It was a heart that was centered on the gospel. How do we kill this self-deception? How do we kill this hypocrisy? How do we kill this tendency towards self-exaltation for intentional deception? Repentance. You and we need to take an honest look at ourselves, take an honest look at our heart, and we need to acknowledge where in our own hearts we're guilty. And we need to admit the truth not only to God but to others. We need to bring that deception out into the light and kill it. We need to replace the deceit with honesty. We need to drag that deception, drag that hypocrisy out into the light where it can be seen for what it is. We need to repent. Where are you outwardly trying to be somebody that you really aren't? You see, so many of us who fear this, this, this type of honesty, I know I do. I know the thought of being honest with God and honest with others is scary for so many of us. It's easier to get the praises of people. People are easily deceived. People are easily manipulated. It's much easier for you to get to like me and to see me a particular way than for me to be honest. For me to be authentic and open about the things that I struggle with. But here's what you've got to see. The gospel frees us from that fear. The gospel says that even the worst things about you, 
even the worst things about you are true. And that Jesus lived in your place and died in your place for your sin. And because of who he is and your faith in him, you're actually forgiven of those things. And if you're in Christ, that hypocrisy, that deceit, it's dead. It was nailed to the cross with him. And you are now clothed in his righteousness. You don't need to fear the honesty anymore. The gospel frees us from that kind of fear. It brings freedom into our life and it drives us in that sense then free to be honest and free to, free to have categories for understanding our sin. Free to have categories for ways of being with one another and hearing one another. You see, what do you really have to lose of being honest? Really, what do you have to lose? You know, that image that you've cultivated that really isn't you, it, it might take a hit. The image might get dented. It might get damaged. But honesty and truthfulness and openness ultimately is balm for your soul. It is medicine for your disease. Don't give hypocrisy room to hide in your heart. Don't give deception room to hide in your heart. Bring it out into the light. gospel. The gospel meets us at that place of dishonesty and deceit. And it helps us to see it for what it is. You see, if you begin to get this, if your heart begins to be satisfied by this, you begin to see it for what it is. And when that happens, nothing that you see, even in the darkest parts of your heart, should ever really surprise you. The gospel gives you this unbelievably broad category for the darkness that's in your heart. And when you begin to see it for what it is, it won't surprise you. When someone comes to you and they, they open up their heart and they confess a, a darkness in their soul and they bring a deceit and they bring a hiddenness out into the light and you're there and they, they've trusted you with this, it gives you a capacity to look at them and not go, wow, that's awful. Goodness. I'm glad I'm not you. And that's what you fear, isn't it? Really? And the gospel begins to grip you. It begins to give you a category for the darkness in your own heart and the capacity to experience this type of gospel-born unity and fellowship with one another. And you can say, apart from the grace of God, I would be doing the same thing. But here's the thing, I do things that are much worse. <laughs> apart from the grace of God, I do exactly what you just said. But you know what? I do things that are a whole lot worse. The gospel helps us to see that we're capable of some of the most offensive, vile, and petty things that we could ever imagine. And it gives us a category for understanding the darkness in our hearts and responding to those who bring their sin out into the light. And here's where we'll end. The gospel gives us hope. It gives us freedom. It gives us understanding. It gives us hope. Because of Jesus, it's all forgiven. He loves us despite us. Tim Keller, he'll close it down for us. He said the gospel gives us the psychological freedom we need to handle the wrong things we do. You won't have to deny, spin, or suppress the truth about yourself. Only with the support of hearing Jesus say that you are capable of the terrible things you know about yourself but I am absolutely unconditionally committed to you. Will you have the capability 
to be honest with yourself. This is the type of honesty that we're after. This is the type of honesty we want to pursue. This is the type of authenticity that's produced out of a people who are gospel-centered and grace-driven. Redemption Hill, let's, let's be less concerned, less concerned with impressing each other and impressing other people and pursuing the popular opinion of people. And let's be more concerned with who we are in the eyes of the one who sees all things. All things. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word that doesn't just tell us of history past, but by your spirit, it dives deep into our soul and it unpacks who we are in the darkest parts of our heart. And as we face the sinfulness of our treason against you, Lord, your word shows us the magnitude of your graciousness towards us. Lord, help us as we, as we're empowered by you to see the deceit, to see the darkness, to see the hypocrisy of our own hearts. Help us to see the grandeur of your grace towards us. Help us to be a people who are preoccupied with being centered on who you are for us in Jesus and who are preoccupied with who we are in your eyes. Lord, free us from the freedom, from the, from the, from the love of other people's opinion. Free us from the love of stuff and things. Free us from the things that pull our eyes off of you and who you are. Lord, and then compel us to be a people who live in light, who live in honesty, who live in freedom that comes from being satisfied with who you are for us in Jesus. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could experience this freedom, so that we could experience this unity, so that we could experience this power and effectiveness, so that we could experience this grace-driven life. Amen.